0: Hey, everybody. Magnus here. You know, I was never a big Apple enthusiast. I was never that, that guy. But at the same time, I always held Apple in pretty high regard. Or at least I held their products in high regard. I mean, Steve Jobs, has, he, he always seemed like a, a total asshole to me. I'll, I'll probably get more into that, a bit more into, I don't know, probably some future show, but suffice it to say, I think Steve Jobs was a colossal prick. There are Apple offices here in Texas, all right? I've got friends who've worked there, at least at one point. And from time to time, Steve Jobs would pay that office a visit. And I've heard this same story from multiple people multiple times, that Steve Jobs would play games with his employees, I think very cruel games. He'd get in an elevator with somebody, and the instant the door closed, he'd turn to face them and order them to explain who they are what their job is, and how they make money for them. If they couldn't give them a complete answer before the end of the elevator ride, they were fired. True shit. That really happened. And only assholes do that kind of stuff. But at the same time, you can't really argue with the quality and consistency of Apple products, at least when Steve Jobs was running the show. He wanted his products to be the best on the marketplace, and by and large, they were. But he's been gone for a long time now. Apple has really gone to the dogs ever since Jobs passed away. Best example I can think of is the iPod Classic. Now, I've been a huge fan of the iPod Classic for very close to 10 years now. And the reason for that is because around 2007 or 2008, something like that, Apple came out with the 160-gigabyte version of the iPod Classic. This behemoth can manage a shit-ton of audio and video. And that makes it very attractive to people like me who want to pack shitloads of media into small containers. Now... It came out back in September 2014 that the iPod Classic was being discontinued. And the main reason for that was because Apple was having more and more trouble getting the parts that they need to manufacture it. And the issue there is there's really no clear successor to the iPod Classic. At least, not the 160 gig version. I mean, sure, you can get iPod Touches, iPod Minis, and all that bullshit. But trouble is, none of them have hard drives bigger than 64 gigs. That's it. And that's a real pain in the ass for the people like me who like having shitloads of stuff on their iPods. Take my current iPod setup right now. I've got 115 gigs worth of audio On my iPod, it consists of shitloads of songs, a bunch of audiobooks, a lot of other people's podcasts, and and also work in progress versions of uh, future episodes of *Trennis Magnus Punches Reality*. It's all on there. There's also a tremendous variety of stuff on there. I mean, I've got punk rock, heavy metal, classical music, some novelty disco songs. Film scores, progressive metal, post-rock, sludge. I've even got some Middle Eastern music on there. I just like all different kinds of music. I'm not always in the mood for just one thing, and so having that much to choose from on my iPod anytime I feel like listening to it is perfect for me. But sooner or later, this iPod is going to break. Time isn't on my side here, and when it breaks... I can either pay a fucking fortune for some old, unopened, effectively brand new, but not really new at all, 160 gig iPod, or I can settle for some shitty replacement that only houses 64 gigs worth of stuff. Both of those options suck. But there's no better summary for how the mighty have fallen. If Steve Jobs was still around, He'd either force his suppliers to continue manufacturing the parts that Apple needs for the 160-gig iPod, or he'd invent some new media player that has the same amount of storage space, if not more. But that stuff isn't happening. Instead, Apple quietly put the iPod Classic out to pasture. It, it, It was only a news item because someone happened to notice it on Apple's website. Only then did this announcement become news. And if you ask me, it's just fucking sad. It's sad for me because eventually, and maybe already, but you just can't buy a decent replacement for my iPod. That day is going to come sooner or later. In fact, technically it's already here, but at least I've still got the old one. But sooner or later, I'm not going to be able to buy a new one. But it's also sad for Apple that Steve Jobs has been replaced by people with absolutely no vision or backbone. Look, if you love everything that Apple does and you think they're still in their golden age, dude, God bless. Okay? More power to you. But for the things that I use Apple products for, basically everything they create lately is fail mixed with suck. There was a time when Apple had a leader who wouldn't stand for this kind of bullshit and would move heaven and earth to make sure his customers got what they wanted. Those days are over now. And it's just sad. Anyway. Now, uh, one other thing. I usually try to run a non-political and non-partisan type of show. But in this episode, Honeywell and I make quite a few statements with fairly political ramifications. And the reason for that's because this episode wasn't really conceived as an episode. He and I just kind of shot the bull for a little while before starting in on what would become the Big Book of Death episode. And so what you're listening to right now is, or what you're about to listen to, is him and me uh, just hanging out, chatting a little bit, and I guess if, if you want to put it in these terms, sort of warming up for the big book of death, and that's what ultimately got the conversation started. So, there you go. Anyway, now enjoy the rest of the episode.
1: your attention please
0: this is a piece of
1: art his kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by earth's yellow sun dr doom wears body armor to conceal his own mangled form worst episode ever
2: why who shot first who gives a shit it's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important
0: Our work? Oh. Well, uh, now, are you, like, are you ready to record or do you need a couple oh, yeah. minutes?
3: Okay. No, no, I've been home for like 25 minutes
0: or so, so. Ah. Smoked up and relaxed. Alright. Uh, well, I don't know, man. I was, uh, just seems like it's been forever since last time we talked. Oh. No. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, um, like, this time out, I was gonna. Like half-ass, somewhat sort of cheat. Okay. Um. I was I was gonna have uh, one story and I guess one concept, and uh, the story was gonna be, you know, being as it's Halloween and ever or it will be Halloween, close to Halloween, whatever. Um. Why not? Are zombies real? From uh, this is page 184. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was going to be, you know, like the one like story I had. And then the concept. Basically, I kind of got a little bit pissed off reading the um, first couple of stories here because it's really... These are all variations, basically, on the death penalty. Yeah. yeah but yeah. they pretty much seem to not ever want to call it the death penalty. They keep calling it killing. Which, I guess in the broadest sense yeah i guess that's what's going on but not really and so anyway it just uh i don't know it just felt like it's just so fucking one-sided and so fucking political and everything and you know uh anyway so that's that was gonna be you know kind of my angle on that and so uh my fondest yeah. hope well, is i mean
3: the, the politics of the people making this are pretty left-wing i would imagine yeah it's just in general yeah probably yeah uh, the- and the 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 you know just the um judging by other books that have come out and yeah just general crew there or they're almost actually they're almost like anarchist style more than anything else i would think
0: yeah well i don't know uh one man's uh anarchy is another i don't know Anyway, yeah. I will say this about anarchy, though. You know, it's kind of weird. Everybody presupposes that it would never work, but as far as I know, it's one of the few um, styles of government out there that anybody's ever dreamed up that's never been attempted. And yet we're all so fucking positive that it wouldn't work. I think it's... I, I don't think it's ever been consciously
3: attempted. I think it's, like, probably in the early days of humanity it was sort of like that, but... Yeah, it's uh, the thing is I've known a lot of anarchists and I and I've had many. You know, the thing about anarchy is it's one of those tainted words that everybody thinks anarchy is is chaos. Mm-hmm. And the, and they're, they're like, no, anarchy is just a lack of lo- the lack of government. But
0: that's not
3: really true either. It's just sort of
0: it's extremely
3: local government. Yeah, it's extremely local and spontaneous and almost random government. Like people take turns doing different things. It's interesting. I'd I'd be surprised. I'd I'd be interested to see how it would actually turn out in real life. You know, it would obviously be lots of tweaking. And
0: yeah, the absolute closest that I can think of anyone ever actually attempting any form of anarchy, and even this is completely debatable. The absolute closest, though, is uh, very possibly you know various branches of the Occupy movement. And even yeah. there, you kind of have to them.
3: Yeah, or, um... I'm trying... Burning Man, maybe. It's, especially in the early days of it. Where it would just be... A bunch of people would camp out in the desert and... You know, have to sort of set up a city in order to, to survive. Sounds John Galt to me. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's like it's like John Galt on lots of psychedelic drugs. <laughs> more than, More than anything... Yeah, a lot, a lot of the people at Burning Man are, are probably too wasted to to be too philosophical. <laughs> well, or or coherently
0: philosophical. Yeah, well, true that. You know, it's kind of funny, though, like, as far as Occupy is concerned, I always wanted to compare that not to so much to Anarchy, although kind of, but more I always kind of thought of suppose, like, you've read Lord of the Flies, right? Yeah, oh yeah, that was one of the first books I ever read. Well, suppose that the boys weren't found near the end, right? Right, right. And then suppose that they had some type of way to perpetuate that, I don't don't even want to call it civilization, but basically the beginnings and the rudiments of whatever was starting to take shape, suppose that had been perpetuated, right? And I kind of, it's a sort of interesting thought experiment, because I always thought the point of the book was they were starting to get there, and then it sort of kind of got curtailed. But then you look at, um, the best example that I found was Occupy Oakland. And um, and I saw somebody's photo essay about it, and it basically started off as I would a borderline hippie commune, right? But then these little divisions started coming in, right? Oh yeah, and I s- could we could do a we could do a
3: five-hour show on on just Occupy Oakland. I, I was in constant daily contact with uh, Occupy Oakland through the whole thing, and yeah, I, you're you're exactly going in the right direction. Yeah, you, every, it, all of a sudden it became all these schisms and little groups, and it it was worse. It was really bad here in Rochester. Rochester's Occupy group, the the Oakland group, were a little more seasoned. They they if you live in Oakland, you have your you, dealings with the police and crime and stuff. They were a little more they weren't as soft as the of course the rochester people had to occupy through winter but it, it generally what what happened with almost every occupied group is it it divided up into little you know segments that all had their little power plays and and were pushing their agendas and the, and then there were like all these pesky groups like like the socialists the socialists were a big fucking problem and so was um, MoveOn.org. Now that we're, were big problems for Occupy because they came in and try they, both of those would just come in and try to take over, you know, be like, oh, OK, we have a protest going here. You know, that we'll start doing things this way and and move on, you know, would try to sign everybody on and move on. And it's like, no, this is supposed to be not a left wing or a right wing movement, you know. Right. It was supposed to be a movement of people, generally. But it, it turned in... It, when Whenever there's a protest like that, the people that turn up first are the hippie hippie dippy activists, and they want it to be their agenda. And they want their agenda to drive everything, and they'll drive away anybody who does not agree
0: with them, you know, if, if, if they're allowed to. Well, the thing about uh, Occupy Oakland that jumped out at me was that this photo essay it showed that there was these big tough looking scary guys that were basically in charge of finding stolen stuff right? So basically if, some, if, if you got your iPod or whatever stolen from you you go He's to good. these guys and they'd probably be able to track it down. If you come back in a hundred years and, I, and this assumes that Occupy Oakland is a completely hermetically sealed environment right? You come back in a hundred years that's a police department right um, yep. and then there was this uh, there, there was another tendency where basically um, there was an LGBT sort of quadrant and basically if you're a straight white man, don't go in there you know and uh, basically is what it is what it came down to you come back to that in a hundred years it's basically the Castro district you know just on and on and on and on and right, so right. what you have here are people who are on the one hand, throwing off the supposed shackles of society and then on the other hand rebuilding that stuff whether they know it or not exactly the same yep and it was just so fucking fascinating because i can't say that i'm like this big anthropologist or anything but everybody likes anthropology i there are very few people out there i've known or sorry anthropology no i'm sorry sociology my bad
3: sociology yeah i love anthropology
0: too but there, I find there are very few people out there who don't like sociology, at least on some level. And I got to tell you, dude, I mean, as best I can tell, this is the one time, definitely in recent history, but maybe ever, that somebody has ever attempted in borderline laboratory conditions to create society. And yeah, now i'm not saying that it's a good thing or a bad thing that uh, that occupy oakland got broken up but of them all that was the one that had my attention because yep yeah i think you could advance the so fucking many fields if you went over that with a sign with just a fine-tooth comb you could advance so many fields by decades centuries in some cases yep anyway oh yeah
3: oh yeah and well hopefully i imagine there are people doing just that for the limited amount that they had on it yeah you may not have heard the last of occupy it it could uh it could happen again i think occupy if it if occupy does anything or manifests and it'll be in a different way i think that sort of they, they they really had a they they really could have had a chance, but it would have they would have had to have gotten to a point of bloody confrontation, you know, where they would have where they would have had to take some casualties because eventually they would have been
0: removed violently, you know, at, at some point. it to a degree they kind of were.
3: Yes, yeah, but but at the at the same time all of them sort of pulled up camp at the same time they all just sort of got you know it could have been they could have they could have kept trying to hold the play hold the park you know until they could could have kept trying to push it and push it and push it until either either something you know violent was done to them or people started like getting curious and they needed to attract what they failed at doing was attracting Joe Six Pack and, you know, suburban people and, you know, people of all political stripes. They did not reach out to the right and they should have. They should have been reaching out to the Tea Party, uh, even though they totally disagree with the Tea Party and the Tea Party could have disagreed with him, with them. they, They should have been trying to find, like, there's scraps of common ground. You know, there's always scraps of common ground. And their failure was to try to find those. They, they didn't even want to try to find those. You know, I, I I got in so many fights with Occupy people where they were just like, you know, why would we want the Tea Party here? And it's like, because they're Americans like you, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's... It, it,
0: the, the polarization is so... You know, there are, there are so few conspiracy theories that I... That I find really tenable, but one that I thought had a germ of merit, right? And keep in mind, I don't give a damn about the Koch brothers. First off, I really don't think they're the mustache-twirling villains that people want to make them out to be, you know. But no, almost, almost nobody is. You know what I mean? I mean, I mean,
3: if you lived, if if you were a fly in the wall in the Koch brothers' house, they they would be. They would be like rich people, and they would probably say things that were asshole every once in a while. But, you know, when they were around their family, they'd probably be just like anybody else. You know what I
0: mean? Yeah. And, and there was a—somebody floated a theory, though. And i got to tell you, I thought this had a—and I want to be careful how I always say this— just a very small germ of credibility to it, right? Think about when Occupy Wall Street, which I think was probably the granddaddy of them all, As far as, like, chronology. Mm -hmm. Think about when Occupy Wall Street kicked off, right? Not so much the year, but the season, right? It was, um, as I recall, October... and Going into early November of 2011. In other words, that's pretty fucking close to winter. And basically it goes like this. This conspiracy theory I heard basically went like this. Occupy was... Occupy in general, but specifically Occupy Wall Street. The Koch brothers, uh, it was basically a false flag operation instigated by the Koch brothers. It wasn't designed to be a real movement. It was designed to attract real activists. But it really wasn't uh, designed to be a, like a real movement. It was they basically, whether they knew it or not, they were agents provocateurs. The uh-huh. idea being, supposedly, expose the left wing for being a bunch of, you know, just whatever they are, weirdos, soften uh, uh, Barack Obama up for the presidential election conveniently exactly one year from now. And all the while knowing that because you're going into, uh, into winter, there's only so much punishment the human body can take and eventually right. you have got to get indoors and warm up. And so the idea is that it was going to be a flash in the pan here today, gone later today and that's basically all it was and if you look at like the timeline of things if honestly the one thing that makes me just not believe it is the fact that new york city is as liberal as it is i really don't think it would have been easy for the Koch brothers to pull something like i don't care how rich or influential you are i don't think that could have been easily accomplished there you know but apart from that it's one of the few conspiracy theories I've ever heard that I honestly thought you know what there might be something there I'm not going to sign it my name be, to it
3: it could be done they would have had to have, they definitely would have had to have been manipulating but the thing is the left is kind of easy to ma- manipulate in a lot of ways they, 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 they are predictable in, in a lot of the stuff that they do and the way that they do it
0: well they're very um, collectivist in their thinking to begin with it's not hard to lead them
3: well, the, the, the problem with, like, the, the left as far as the subsection of protest movement and stuff like that is there's a lot of um, nostalgia for the old days of the hippie days of, of protest. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people who are in the, the entrenched organizational roles that were there for that, you know, who were... Who were you know around around for that and of that age and they you know a lot of times they have this air about them that hey i was at kent state man i know you know Mm -hmm. i know what to do i know what to do with this and i know how to handle this you know i know how to run a protest and and um the problem with that is that's you know 50 years ago the 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 people that they're protesting against have had 50 years to counter figure out countermeasures and figure out how to diminish those protests and it's just and they're just another protest they're 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 nothing new and they don't stick in people's heads but a lot of the young people are want to be are you know young proto hippies and they idolize people like that and and they go along with it, so they end up just using the same tactics over and over again. And if they would just use their brains a little bit and come up with new tactics and have... There, there was a big schism in the Occupy movement. A lot of the Occupy movement were more of the mind of Anonymous. It was like, sort of like, there was, the biggest clash of philosophies was the Anonymous thinking which was definitely outside of the box. And then there was the, you know, hippie thinking, which was
0: traditionalist.
3: Yeah, let's get some chants together. Let's drop some signs. You know, let's get some granola going around. Literally, that's what it was in Rot. You know, it's like you went there and it was like, hey, everybody, I have some soy milk over here to share. And like, oh, and everybody would go over and stuff, and it's just like, Jesus Christ, they have no idea that they're fucking stereotypes, you know? Right. Mm. Some of them are really nice people that I've known for years, and it's just like, you have to attract different people other than, oh, there's some soy milk over here, you know? It, it, but those are the people that come to those things first, you know? And, uh, and, uh, oh, yeah. The mo- uh, the mo- I think Rochester here was probably the most unbearable occupy in um, in the whole country. They 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 cut a deal. They cut a deal with the city that, to let them stay on their in in their area for a certain amount of time, and then left when that time. Well, the time's up. Well, you know, it's just like <laughs> you guys don't get it. But as far as like people being like walking talking stereotypes and just like swayed by every stupid youtube video they said occupy portland was the grandmother of them all still is (laughs) occupy portland's about the only really like active occupy facebook page still and it's full of yahoo's oh my god so frustrating talking to occupy portland they they actually do shit. They actually or- mobilized and and um, g- voted down putting what um, you um, whatchamacallit call it in the water in Portland. Um, fluoride. Fluoride. Yep. Mm. They voted it down because you know, and and I'm like, dude, you guys, you know, they think they're Alex Jones conspiracy theory. That's old fucking. Um, oh what the hell it Donald was
0: old Trump. in the 90s dude I mean,
3: <laughs> oh no that was that that stuff's from the 50s they were picking on that in Dr. Strangelove you know they were making fun of the there was a right wing conspiracy from the 50s to the 80s and then in the 90s it became a left wing conspiracy the whole fluoride makes you dumb depletes your vital
0: fluids I look back on it since we're on the subject I look back on it You know, uh, then as now, the way I felt about Occupy Wall Street, which it felt like that was the one that got the most attention, you know, but it just it felt to me like it wasn't that they I heard people say, well, they had no platform. They had no message. I don't think that was Occupy Wall Street's problem. No, I don't either. I think that what happened when they the problem was. They started off basically on very common, literally on common ground. They It was not, look, the the symbolism hopefully is not lost on anybody. Wall Street, that's the message. And the minute... Period, that's it, yeah. And the minute they try to expand beyond that, like some dumb son of a bitch typed up a manifesto that basically outlined their principles, and I'm like, okay, whatever credibility this thing just had is now gone because every single one of these platforms is so left-wing that there are there are probably people in freaking sweden who are like okay dude settle down you know right
3: right right i mean occupy was not a platform to bring everybody was like oh dude we, this is where we're gonna find the, the charismatic person who's gonna lead the lead this but and and there were people going w- where's occupy's leaders and spokesmen you know and what's what's their message and the message the, the thing about the messages the media could go oh, what's the message what's the message everybody knows what the message was it was just just by the act and where they did it was that it was all you needed and Occupy was basically a big should have just at the simplest level been a big microphone and it was basically Occupy should have been just like hey we're getting screwed by you know the influence of money in our government and our government it's basically taxation without representation uh, again and you know and and it should have been a forum for people to go and meet and talk about it and talk about what they wanted to do about it and and or or what what that or, or try to learn something or try to tell or try to add something to it and it 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 should not it should not it should have been open source i guess would be
0: a good word well, it just felt th- to me that was the moment you know when that could have been yeah. a sort yeah. of a trans ideological type of movement because i don't care who you are i don't care how conservative you think you are or how liberal you think you are or moderate or fucking whatever anybody anybody can say that you know what there are way too fucking many lobbyists in Washington, And too fucking many of them represent these huge multinational banks and conglomerates. And, you know, this is supposed to be a government by the people, of the people, for the people. And this is this is not. I mean, and you know what? That is a fundamentally conservative message at the mm-hmm. same time that it's a fundamentally liberal message and that it's a libertarian message. A libertarian, too. It's it's everything. Right? yeah exactly it's it's
3: just a basic foundation of of from the foundations of America right you know and i I it's it's also sort of a cycle I think governments go through too and how the citizens react to it is important and how you know whether that takes takes hold irrevocably irrever- well nothing could ever take hold irrevocably, but
0: it it just felt to me like there was a a, the minute they diversified like say whatever you want about the tea party love them or hate them they have one issue spending okay you take every now you can agree with that message or not we're spending too much we're not spending enough you have to at least give them you have to grant them that from day one they started on tax day spending we spend too fucking much Everything else that they do seems to kind of flow from that one single principle. And, you know, I've kind of got a mixed relationship with the Tea Party, to be honest with you, but I got to give them that, you know? Well,
3: I think what happened to the Tea Party is what happened to Occupy. What happens to all of them is it gets... once They they always start up, they have an idea, and then if it it takes hold and they get uh, an amount of popularity... Then it just attracts everybody, you know, on who's, and then you get other agendas getting thrown in, and it gets muddied up. And then people who don't like it can grab onto that and fur- further muddy the waters. And then you know, the the baggage just piles up so quickly in our culture on words. I wish we could just have a new political. Movement based on pure pragmatism, you know, based upon what the goals of of the country are, you know, and or, or, and goals besides profitability. Profitability is not a bad goal, but it's just not the only goal, you know. It's just like if if we were spending the money on educate, I mean, we're really seeing the acutely the the effect of how we've just. Been cutting and cutting education for decades and decades. It's starting to show up, you know. I was taught. I somebody put up a, the dumbest, dumbest. And I never comment on memes because I don't even accept them as a communication form. But it was just one of the dumbest things I ever heard. And it was a. Of course, it was like Chuck Norris, and he said something like, you know, the the Constitution is an unchangeable rock like is rock like in its you know it it can it, it was made n- never to be changed and and a lot of people are trying to reinterpret it as a living document and i was like wait wait a second doesn't it have you know an amendment process built into it and then it took me 10 seconds to find an article an interview with with him where he was defending this, where he was talking about the importance of the second amendment And it's like, does he know what, does he even know what an amendment is? You know, it's, it's just so weird that people don't know sort of simple things about how, how the government works. Or, um, I was seeing something where they were just talking about people, they were interviewing people in towns all over the country who just weren't even aware that there was an election (laughs) coming up.
0: They, They just had no idea that, I don't know. Wait, you mean the? You mean next month or? Yeah. Or, oh well, I don't know. Midterms, it's so easy for those to get overlooked. I, that I could cut them some slack on if you're. But wow, the. Mm, yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, I
3: just in general, and I stopped asking people that I know and work with and see in general life. But my test would always be like, you know who the vice president is, right? Oh yeah. Who? Um, uh, yeah, and I, I started finding that like three quarters of the people that I talked to could not tell you who the vice president of the United States is.
0: You're kidding. And look, I don't need you to know who uh, who the secretary of state is, although it wouldn't hurt, but it wouldn't hurt. But if you don't know who the vice fucking president is. Well, you know what? To be honest, though, you know what? Some, that that a should a not. A chunk s-
3: of people really don't care about, and they don't want to hear about politics. All they know is it's something that makes people fight, and it makes their brain hurt, and they're all full of shit anyway, and blah blah blah. So they don't. So they just tune it right out, you know. Except for like the simplest layer of it, of whatever makes them mad, you know, whatever grinds their gears and then they'll talk about that a little bit to a limited extent
0: (laughs) well I saw this uh, video um, that basically interviewed people and it said well in your opinion is Sarah Palin the reason that Barack Obama lost the election back in uh, 2008 was it his pro-life platform that did it or is it his uh, his his friendliness to uh, the state of Israel Right. Which if, if obviously right. I, I don't have to break this down for you, that bears no fucking resemblance to real life. But let's right.
3: Right. And, and and it gives people like three opportunities to go like, hey, wait a minute. You know, right. If they missed one, it just. Yeah. And, no, no. They, they did. They probably just went right up, o- right along and
0: it ticked one off and. And uh, and and then they closed it off. The creme de la creme, everything this little questionnaire sort of spoken survey everything about it hinged upon the fact that Barack Obama lost back in uh, 2008 <laughs> and then it said now do you plan to vote uh, to re-elect Barack Obama in 2012 yep yep uh, I, I mean honestly dude this is one of those videos I think it was like 20 minutes long or something like that I couldn't bear it I, anymore after watching the second person or third no the third person completely fucking carpet bomb this this thing it hurt it physically hurt to be exposed to this much stupid all right and so i just i had to let it i had to turn it off because otherwise i've got no choice except to take over the world and institute a a trentocracy and i don't think anybody wants that
3: there's a good chunk of the population whose life consists of getting up in the morning going to work on the way home picking up some fast food watching a few hours of TV, going to bed and rinse and repeat, and having like some fishing or something to do on the weekends maybe, but a lot of times it it just ends up being more TV watching, and you know, I mean, it, to, uh, talking talking to young, young people and seeing the percentage of young people that actually like, have ever read a book, I get excited when they're like, oh yeah, I've read a book. <laughs> you know, outside of... Harry Potter and the Goblet uh, of Fire? Uh, no, hey, that's... I don't care what it is that they're reading. I mean, Harry Potter's... Harry Potter's got a, a enough... If, if if that's all you ever read, you'll get... A, you'll get a, at least a, a bit of... A little bit of everything, you know? A little bit of nuance or whatever. You know, it's not a tale of two cities or anything like that. But... <laughs> It's something, you know. It's there, There's something about the act of reading, and the way that, you know. There's watch watching a movie. You're being fed a, a a picture. You're being fed the whole the whole thing. And when you're reading a book, well, there's a, your imagination's engaged. Watching something or. Um, but when you get to the point of reading or listening to something or listening to someone let's say tell a story or or a book on tape or something like that then parts of your brain start firing that aren't firing when you're watching something because those parts are creating the visual aspect of it in your mind and your imagination and you're working whole you're working your imagination you know so and almost any kind of reading probably more so fiction or something that's or at least very descriptive even nonfiction actually does would would do the same thing but uh it 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 just completely works it's a different thing you know you might see the same story in a movie and read it in a book but it's it's going to be a completely different experience to do it and once people start reading they figure that out but these days, there's just not, and kids, kids, all the kids usually get through school, cheating through the books, or they'll, they'll, you know, they'll get Cliff Notes and stuff. Well, people did that when we were kids too, but it's a lot
0: easier with the internet now. Well, the um, t- just to kind of run with the the Harry Potter example, right? Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire is. It's one of the most frustrating cinematic experiences of my adult life. and that's saying something, dude. That's I'm putting this in the same breath, you understand as Superman fucking returns, right? That's the kind of disappointment we're talking about. Did you read the books? Oh, of course. Yeah,
3: okay. so and, yeah, so you know, I mean just to condense them
0: down into the movies. well, what what bugged me was the big picture sort of got adapted. But the whole thing, and, and just putting aside, you know, technical stuff like this subplot or that character or what have you, the thing about it that ultimately just burned my balls was I think the problem a lot of people have with books that they have a real affection for getting turned into movies. There's a part at the end of the movie, right? I don't know if you've seen the movie or read the books or what. Yeah, but, I've, I've read all the books, seen all the movies. Oh, All right. Well, you, you remember that bit at the end where Harry and, uh, you know, his little group go up to uh, – uh, the Ministry of Magic on a supposed rescue mission for Sirius, the, yes. and then and there's a sequence in the movie, right, where they're wandering around the Department mm-hmm. of Mysteries, and they're looking, they think for Sirius, but what they find is number one the prophecy, and then number two the Death Eaters. That sequence in in the movie played out, except for the acting, but I mean just like the the appearance of it, you know, like the the shadows and the And the sort of limited kind of lighting of it, you know, Mm -hmm. those bright lights, but it's just there's no ambience to them. It looked exactly the way I imagined it. You know, when I was reading the book, I was like, this is what it looks like in there, right? And then everything that happens after is nothing like what I am. And it it just kind of felt like just it was so frustrating. It's like they're so close, but they're so far. And and then, you know, and then. Uh, And to be fair, there are times when it goes the other way, where the very next Harry Potter movie, it looked so much better than what I, I don't know, what I guess I'd sort of imagined it to be. It still kind of had that sort of Velveeta-y, kind of over-the-top acting at, at, at a lot of points. But when you get away from that, there were a lot of, I think, really cool ideas going on there that weren't necessarily present in the books more from a visual standpoint. I don't think the the movies really contributed a whole lot in terms of narrative or character, or God knows, performance. But as far as like visualizations of the book, there were very few times when the movies were improvements, but the fifth movie, I gotta hand it to them, dude. They did something right.
3: It was one of those things where, eh, if he had a lot of money and wanted to do a really good mini-series, for a few seasons you could have pulled it off better but as far as a movie adaptation goes it's about it once you get the first two movies were like passable were were watchable for me but i didn't like i can't remember who the director was christopher columbus uh yes 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 and uh, I, fi- I find his director really cloying and plus all the actors, the kids were really young in it, and it just had that you know, he, that, that um, wannabe Spielbergness to it mm-hmm. and, uh, but at the same time that worked in the whole thing as a whole because it helps underli- that sort of underlines as it gets darker and darker Going along, you know, it just makes it seem even more darker when you watch the first two movies. But uh, once, it, once though, after the after the first two movies, that's when I started like really like looking forward to the next one coming out. And uh, I was always like generally satisfied. Uh, what was the one with um where Lupus first showed up? Uh, the Prisoner of Azkaban. That that was uh, Del Toro, right? Was that Del Toro? That, no, um, that? Alfonso Cuaran. Coran, yeah, that was where I was. That was where I was, really starting to get excited about it because a Del Toro Harry Potter movie has my money, no questions that would asked. That sight unseen. <laughs> yeah, that would be great, but um he sort of reminds me of del toro a little bit and and i remember seeing that and i i was like all right this director is putting some of his own putting some style into it you know on top of you know which a lot of people just don't want to put a fingerprint on something that they know is going to be part of a whole you know so so a lot of directors will dial back their style and stuff and uh he did not do that at all and there was always that was the one that where it was the most pronounced but there was always a little feeling of that from all the movies after that i
0: thought yeah i thought the movies like visually speaking got a little more generic after that that was definitely the most stylized Mm -hmm. but at the same time i felt like it was a little too dark at certain points like because when you really think about it number one it's really not all that heavy a story and number two nothing really all that terrible happens until the end and number three the stuff that happens it's terrible at the end it's only terrible in retrospect at the time yeah. you don't really understand the full import of what just happened you know and it just kind of felt like it was a little bit too anticipatory of what's to come it felt like like whether you like The Phantom Menace or not I think one of the few things that makes the tone of that film work is the fact that Uh, Revenge of the Sith is fucking Terminator right that's how fucking dark this thing is and you have this dynamic contrast between the two these two very different extremes and it just kind of felt like you know you have this first movie it's all chipper bright shiny happy Chamber of Secrets which is slightly less so but still it's pretty close to the first one and then out of nowhere it's fucking Tim Burton and you're like what the hell happened right and it just kind of felt like it was there's an it, it was basically, I guess, kind of keeping step with fan expectations rather than being true to the, I guess the, the real tone and spirit of the book.
3: Yeah, well, the book was just, yeah, the, the, the book. and I well, the thing is I read the books ex- like I started reading the books just after the next to the last one came out. So I got to just plow, plow through them. And didn't have to wait for him to come out, so I so it was cool because you could feel just the just the working up of the dark, you know, of it getting darker and darker, and and uh, to the point of where I was starting to get a little bit like worried because I was just like, shit, man, this is building this is building towards an ending that cannot be satisfying, you and know.
0: It wasn't. <laughs>
3: It, it was as satisfying as you were going to... I was satisfied with it because it wasn't... It it, it, it wasn't a total cop-out or just a, like, everybody dies sort of stupid thing. It, it, it made sense, and it was it was satisfying enough which to me was like a major major accomplishment (laughs) right it's like it's that's what i when i see stephen king books that are over like 350 pages long i go shit because i read them and i get sucked into them and they always build and build and build and then he'll just poop out the most horrifyingly dumb ending ever and you'll be just like, oh, jeez, I just went through 800 pages caring about everything for this.
0: <laughs> and it wasn't worth it. <laughs> and it
3: was not worth it.
0: <sighs> well. Well, that's a nice
3: warm-up. <laughs> I,
0: I would say so, yeah. Hey, um, you know what? I think I may have a slot at some point for a shoot-the-shit episode. <laughs> okay. Would you mind? <laughs> oh, no. Okay, all right, so I think I'm just going to go ahead and save this then, but yeah. All right, hang on. I'll
3: do the same on mine. All right. (laughs) That way we won't have one massive file.
1: Succaros. Moria Clawhammer here. Thanks to a tax loophole and a life insurance policy, I have an authentic Mexican taco stand. The explosive taqueria. Well... If you want a pound of burrito, or just get your tongue on a taco, well, get off your ass, take a waco Come throw some meat down your throat. If you want some food, here's a thingo. You don't want to eat like a gringo. Have some Mexican grub with some zingo. Taco sauce that explodes in your mouth, at the Explosive Taqueria in South Demanzville We have every kind of goddamn Mexican food you crave. We got chimichangas, ensalada, churros, chupacarnes, deep-fried jalapeno pooper, choritos, the famous taco shake.
3: Taco shake discontinued.
1: Triple refried baked beans, choritos, chimichibas, chimichochas, the Commodore's nachos, and the ever-popular endless burrito bowl. All prepared by our authentic Mexican cook, Manuel. My name is David. I am from Bolivia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the ladies... We have the Tila Tequila, a tiny taco, but you'll be amazed how much beef and cheese we can stuff in there. For the daredevil, we have the El Pollo Croco, a full chicken stuffed with four soft-shell tacos, two beef burritos, and two sides of your choice, deep-fried and slathered in taco sass. The taco sauce with sass. So lock down your sphincter and come on down. Explosive Taqueria, 312 Elm Street, south to Monzaville. Tell Amori Clawhammer sent you.
2: Arrivederci! Hello. My name is Robert Willing, and I love comics. But my all-time favorite comics are the alternate universe comics. Now, that's not an obscure comic company that's known only to local comic stores. What I'm talking about are comics that gives us a different spin on characters we know and love. From your Elseworlds at DC to your What Ifs at Marvel. Why am I doing it? Well, there are two reasons. First of all, I love the unlimited possibilities that the multiverse has brought us, and I wanted to share that love with everyone. I will be talking about all sorts of alternate continuities. If it wasn't canon, I'll talk about it. Houseworld's What if? Intercompany continuity is because, let's face it, very few of those count. I'll also be talking about non-canon minis, like Superman Birthright, Shazam A New Beginning, Bob Layton's Hercules, and even Heroes Reborn, because... Let's face it, we're all glad that never stuck. And on a few occasions, I'll even be discussing the Doctor Who Brown audios. Brown will Also, try and get interviews and Q and A's with as many comic creators as I possibly can. Now, keep in mind, this does not count full running company lines or eras, so no children comics or the Ultimate comics, the All Stars, maybe. Oh, and the second reason, well.
1: Hey, how's it going? Hey, what are you doing in my room?
2: My room? This is mine, At Wait, Sean Engel? What are you doing here?
1: Sean, I'm, I'm Robert Willing, and... Wait, you look like Sean Engel. Ugh,
2: okay, I get it. You're from a world where I'm Sean Engel, and you're me. Man, you you get visits, too? Yeah. You see, folks, my house is set in a unique location of the multiverse, where every world intersects. And I get occasional and very random visits from other me's.
1: Tell me about it. Once I met a version of me where I was Guy Gardner.
2: Pre or New 52? Neither. It was the collateral damage one. Yeah, I met him. What an absolute jerk. Oh, holy cow. That uh, that Guy Gardner was such an ass. So join me I this summer as I met, first the multiverse and share M. different Story, iterations of characters you love, as well as with other babies. And then, you know,
1: and decided to take away the whole Bolvarian thing and make a Bolvarian storyline. It was just awful. What the hell was he doing? i kidding. See you
2: soon, everyone. Elsewhere in the Multiverse, look at all your favorite alternate iterations. Coming soon to a podcast near you.
1: It started in November 2010, when one guy decided it was time to show the denizens of the internet that there was more to Superman's adventures from the 70s and early 80s than Alan Moore and Kryptonite Nevermore. Now, three and a half years later, that mission continues. This is Superman Superman in in the Bronze bronze age. Age. My name is Charlie Niemeyer and every week I shine the spotlight on this long overlooked era on Superman in the Bronze Age. Join in the fun at www.supermaninthebronzeage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com.
0: I'm back now, and I've got a little bit of feedback to go through here. Uh, Basically, for those of you who don't know, I'm really trying to get caught up on all of my feedback, really trying to be a little more diligent about that, and there's really not a whole lot more to add there. So, anyway, first up, this is an email dated July the 30th. The subject line is Superboy and More, written by my old friend, Prime and he writes greetings magnus this comic was interesting and the cover i think could work today with uncle cypher crushing a cell phone in one hand i'll put this email on pause and say for those of you who don't know i did a uh an episode it was part of my uh superman mega series ages ago right and the yeah uh, the uh the cover in question, the one that uh, the one that he's talking about here, that Prime is talking about, this is Superboy number 150, and I've always had a real soft spot for that story, and I wanted that to be part of my Superman mega-series, you know, celebrating Superman's 76th anniversary. And so that was one of the issues that I talked about. And I have to agree with you, Prime, uh, you know, that is a, first off, it's just a really cool uh, cover image. By Neil Adams, I think. I'm actually not completely sure of that all at once, um, and I'm really too lazy to check, but I'm, I think that was Neil Adams. And um, basically, what it, it was the sort of kind of shock cover. I, I can't even say shock cover, but it was the type of uh, attention-grabbing cover that I think, especially the late Silver Age, was kind of known for. In this case, it was um, Uncle Cipher crushing a phone... You know, he jerked it away from Jonathan Kent, just took it right out of his hand, and is crushing the phone in his own hand. While Superboy's kind of standing in the background and watching the whole thing proceed with just this look of horror stamped on his face, but nevertheless, he's powerless to do anything for reasons about which the cover does not elaborate. That's the whole point. Why would Superboy be powerless to stop something like this? And you're supposed to. Ask yourself that question, not have an answer, and then read the story to find out. And this is the kind of thing that I think, again, was very common in the late Silver Age, and it really is just a, a, a good, attention-grabbing cover. It's not perfect. There are, I guess, left to my own devices, there are a few things I'd like to change, but bottom line, you know, it's small potatoes, right? I think it's a good cover, and I think, and I have to agree with Prime, I do think that this would work very well as a, as a uh, comic book cover today, so... Anyway, just something to think about there. Back into Prime's email, he writes, On to my email. I'm sorry Simon Baz has such a crappy origin, and it seems like no one really wants to do much of anything with him. Of course, what I wanted to do with him was take a pretty much blank slate Green Lantern and have fun with it. And if you read the email for the likely-to-be-its-own episode expanded version of that cartoon, I'd have addressed that in there. And I'm going to put this email back on pause and say, yeah, obviously by now I have read that email, and now I'm blanking on which episode it was, but I did read, well, I read as much of that email as I could, but again, Prime, I really hope that that, that it didn't offend you, that I, that thing is just, it really was too long to be, you know, read, you know, really all, all in one go. I read, um, I, and I, I read it, and I think I talked about it for a good 40 minutes or something like that, so again... Not criticizing you, not trying to bash on you. I'm not making fun. Anything, you know. I, it's just, I do hope you understand my my viewpoint on that, though. That it was a little bit too long to fit all of that into one go. So, nevertheless, though, I think I did comment on uh, Simon Baz when I when I read your email there. And I, it's like, on the one hand, I don't want to repeat myself too much, but on the other hand, I do want you to understand. And again, this is not me bashing on you. I totally understand where you're coming from with uh, Simon Baz and everything. It's just that it just feels like that character is so much pandering to me. And it just kind of bothers me, that's all. So it's not that it's a bad character or, or whatever. It's just that sometimes in comics you see just abject pandering. And it's just it's one of those reminders that, you know, comics really are at their best when they don't try to push the envelope in terms of social norms because their track record with that type of thing really sucks. At least if you ask me. And uh, anyway, so to be fair though, Simon Baz is not exactly the worst train wreck uh, of a character in the history of comics and their attempt to be politically correct and everything. And I realize that and everyone else should realize that and also realize that I realize that. But at the same time, like I say, just because Simon Baz isn't the worst in terms of... The comic book industry trying and failing to be politically correct, that doesn't necessarily somehow make me forget how terrible an idea the whole thing always seemed like in the first place. So anyway, again, Prime, not bashing on you or anything like that, so, uh, you know, I really hope you're not taking any of this personally or it's like it's intended as an insult or anything, because trust me, it's not. I wouldn't do that to you, but at the same time, you know, I do just kind of want you to understand what my reference point is on all this, so anyway... Back into Prime's email, he says, and if you read the email, well, I already read that part. Sorry, this one is so short. I enjoyed the comic, enjoyed you reading my email, but nothing really to add beyond that. And that's pretty much the end of the email to which I say, "Prime, dude, I'm just happy you're number one. I'm happy that you're listening. But number two, I'm happy that you're taking the time to write in anything at all." And so, you know, however long or short or whatever, uh your emails are, they're always fun to read. I always like talking about them, so, you know, don't ever feel like you need to apologize for you know sending in a a, a kind of short uh, email there. So anyway, definitely appreciate uh, you know your your interest in the show and you're taking the time to respond. So um let's see now moving on here because the next couple of emails are from Prime and so I kind of want to space those out a bit because there's always something a little bit more to talk about here. I'm gonna skip ahead a little bit in my feedback. This is an email from uh, David Rizzuto. Uh, the subject line is uh, Re Superman Movie Podcast. And David writes, Hey, Trentus, I just wanted to say that I enjoy listening to your show on Two True Freaks. One thing, though, I should let you know about episode 47, where you looked back on some of Superman's movies. Are you aware that there is this diarrhea crapping sound playing right at the end of the podcast? Is that supposed to be in there or something? Well, I'm going to put David's email on pause here and say, you know, David, I am... uh, You know, I'm really happy that you noticed that, uh, because what ended up happening was, I just thought I'd put that in there sort of as a joke, just to see if anybody noticed and fucking nobody noticed. Or if they noticed, most people didn't comment on that. But it's interesting to me that you did. And so I guess, first of all, thank you for noticing. Thank you for listening. Thank you for noticing. And then also, thank you for taking the time to comment on that, because I was starting to think that joke fell on completely fucking deaf ears. So uh, thank you very much. I appreciate uh, you taking the time to, to write about that. Now, to get back into David's email, he writes, Anyway, I agree with most... uh, I agree mostly with what... Oh, I'm going to have to... Sorry, I'm I'm not paying attention here. Let me try this again. Anyway, I agree with mostly about what you said about the Superman movies, especially how Superman 2 is way overrated by fans who bash on other Superman adaptations, especially Zack Snyder's Superman. I'm going to put this email on pause and say, my objective whenever I do that just so everybody knows. It's not necessarily to, to piss all over the Christopher Reeve movies, so I can talk about how awesome this other, super, this other version of Superman is. It's not really like that. To me, all or most versions of Superman, outside of comics, they all have something redeeming about them. There's always something there to enjoy and i 'll look i 'll be the first to admit i 'm pretty ecumenical as far as my views of Superman media are concerned um, and now i 'm getting a text message, so apparently stasis Magnus uh, agrees with me, so that 's very good all right, so anyway, my, like I say my view isn 't to or at least my intention isn 't to 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 bash on the Christopher Reeve movies, make fun of them or anything like that. The idea really is to say that I kind of resent this attitude that those movies, the first one in, uh, in particular, are these examples of just absolute total perfection. Nothing could be done better they're uh, definitive, they're perfect, you know et cetera et etc well, and so there's that and if you feel that way fine, but then the but then other versions of Superman tend to get bashed on for flaws that these supposedly perfect and flawless Christopher Reeve movies have as well. And that's the part that that, that irritates me, all right? If, look, if people enjoy uh, the Christopher Reeve version of Superman, dude, who am I to take that away from, you know? But at the same time, though, bashing on Smallville or Man of Steel or Lois and Clark or, or whatever else because it has this, 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 or this, well, dude, what I notice is that nine times out of ten, that same stuff can be said of the reeve movies but for whatever reason i don't know why but for whatever reason those movies tend to get some kind of a free pass on on certain things and it just it, it just sort of irritates me you know and so that's really the the purpose of it it isn't to uh, it, it's not about ruin any, ruining anybody's good time or or whatever else it's certainly not about you know pissing on those movies, because honestly, I really do enjoy them. Well, maybe not so much Superman 2, but I really do enjoy them. It's just that, you know, if, if you really want to go over this stuff with a fine-tooth comb, my attitude is that, number one, the Christopher Reeve movies have just as many weak spots as anything else, and number two, those weak spots are pretty goddamn bad, all right? Otherwise, Look, everyone's, uh, everyone's free to enjoy or not enjoy whatever they want to, all right? I'm not trying to ruin anybody's good time. I just want to, you know, basically, um... Uh, I, I guess I, I, I just want everyone to sort of just try to take a balanced view of things, that's all. That, I guess ultimately that's, that's all I really want, so... Anyway, get back into David's email, though. He writes, That being said, I do agree with you that the Lester cut is much better than the Donner cut. The only thing I somewhat disagree with you about uh, the Donner Cut is the jor scenes. Don't get me wrong, you got a very good and insightful point about how the scene is unconvincing as a father and son dilemma. But as simple as it sounds, the reason why I like these scenes a lot is because someone is at least trying to convince Superman that giving up his powers so that he can go to bed with Lois is a bad, bad idea. I thought Lara was too easy in comparison. Otherwise, I don't like the Donner cut at all. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna put this email on pause and say, you know, dude, that is the exact type of thing that I'm talking about. All right, you're, you're basically, it looks to me like you're basically taking a balanced view of this, and you're not necessarily accepting my word as gospel. But you do see that, you know, I at least have a point that's worth considering, even if you don't agree with it. So that's fine, you know. And you know what? To your point, I actually kind of agree with that. You know, Laura did kind of roll over a little bit and let superman have his way now she said that yeah you know you're this will take away your powers forever you can be hurt like an ordinary man and then she did this really weird thing where it's like Susanna york came out of the crystal or whatever the fuck that was supposed to be like this is like a three-dimensional uh i don't know projection of Lara or what i don't know and she's and then she actually kind of casts a little bit of doubt on Superman's decision by saying, My son, are you sure? Are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure this is the right thing? And otherwise, she I agree with you, she did kind of let it slide a little bit, whereas in the Donner Cut, you're right, Jor-El actively tried to talk Superman out of it. And so on, on, on those bases, I guess that's fine, you know, I agree with you. It's just that ultimately... I see a lot more right with the Lester cut than I do with the Donner cut, and that's all. So, you know, dude, uh, I think you and I are pretty much on the same page here, and even if we don't agree on that one tiny little thing, you know, it's good that this isn't becoming a, you know, a a point of contention where, you know, you're not listening to the show anymore, you're not writing in or whatever. So, thank you very much. This is, I, I really like your email here is what I'm saying. So, anyway, get back into David's email, though. By the way, if you ever cr- uh, come across any Nolan Batman fan who complains about Superman killing Zod in Man of Steel or still whining about Bert- uh, Burton's Batman killing villains, you can always show them this link, and then he links to uh, you know this other page here, where the Nolans admit, admitted that Batman killed in their first two films. It's from their official book containing the screenplays from all three films. I don't know if you were aware of this, but I thought I'd share uh, this with you in case. I'm going to put the email back on pause and say, you know, dude, I didn't know that. Um, Honestly, though, what I've noticed is that the Nolan Batman fans, it's like they've all sort of gone into hibernation or something. I don't know where they are these days, but they're not the aggravating presence on Facebook that they used to be. And, uh, but, you know, so I, I guess my point here is that they're, they're at least in the circles I seem to hang out in, there, seem, there seems to be less of a uh, likelihood of having those types of discussions. Nevertheless, I didn't know about that, and so thank you very much. I, I do appreciate you sending over that link. Um, you know, it's it's uh, good food for thought, if nothing else. And I guess if I come across um, any uh, Nolan Batman fans who are just so entrenched in, in their views of Batman, not so much as a costumed comic book superhero, but as a standalone sort of I, I don't know, outfitted sort of science fiction type of character, and anyway, they laugh at that if you want, but those people are out there. There's always this link to point them back to. So, anyway, get back into uh David's email here. Uh, he writes, "Thanks for taking the time for reading my painfully long post." Signed, David, the Laughing Fish. And so, uh, David, you know what, dude? Your your email here really wasn't all that long at all, and throughout, all you did was make a good reasoned arguments and, uh, you know, you raised a lot of strong points. And so, honestly, what's not to like, you know? So, uh, thank you very much. I do appreciate you taking the time to, you know, write in and, you know, let me know what you think. And always, of course, I appreciate you taking the time just to listen. So, definitely, there, uh, there's that. This next email, this comes from Mark Lacks. The subject line reads, Superman, or sorry, subject line reads, Smallville, Superman and the rest. Mark writes, Hey Magnus, this is my first time writing in. Love the show, so I thought I'd drop you a line. While Smallville wasn't perfect, it was probably the best live action portrayal post-crisis of Clark and the Superman universe. The relationship between Lex and Clark cannot be duplicated. We watched both characters literally grow into the people they would become. I'm going to put this email on pause and say, you know what, I never really thought of Smallville as being a completely post-crisis show. And the reason for that, especially starting in the second season, and God knows thereafter, is that there were a lot of pre-crisis tropes that ended up getting uh, uh, played. There were multiple colors of kryptonite, and you had uh, Clark meeting people who, sort of as antecedents, people who who would become very foundational to his later life in Metropolis when he's become Superman and all these other things. And it felt like, at least, especially in the first season, like maybe the, the show was taking inspiration from the, the post-crisis era of the character in terms of there not being uh, a costumed secret identity or uh, that sort of more grounded tone that the first season has that really is not as an evidence in in later seasons but by and large you know i kind of regard smallville as being a very pre crisis type of superman and to me that's a compliment but um you know i don't know this is one of those things that it ultimately comes down to influence and how much influence you see of the post crisis versus pre crisis and i don't think that there's a single answer on that or there's a there, there's a single formula at least for me, I see more pre-crisis stuff, but, you know, that's just me. So, either way, though, um, you do you d- you do raise a good point there. So, um, as to the characterization, you know, Lex and Clark, you know, I tend to agree. And it's one of those things that I've only really come to appreciate sort of in retrospect, where at the time that these episodes were coming out every week, it was a little hard to track the uh, character arcs and everything, but rewatching all of that stuff now for these retrospectives that I'm doing, just to kind of give you an example, at the time that I am recording this feedback section, I've pretty much recorded the bare bones of what will become the uh, first part of the season five retrospective. Now, obviously, you're not going to be hearing that for a lot of years, but, I, you know, I I want to record at least a couple of things every week. And Smallville stuff really is the easiest to record because I've got so many notes and things that are always ready to go. So uh, that's not always, but, you know, obviously I have made a lot of progress in terms of getting that stuff recorded. So my point, though, is that it's easier to see these character dynamics whenever you can analyze really the entire series at large, but whole seasons uh, in one go, knowing what the future is going to bring, you know? And I think that when anyone else holds Smallville up to the same scrutiny that I've been holding it up to, they're going to find very similar results, I would imagine. And um, it just... You're right. I don't think that this level of uh, character development is ever going to be quite equaled. The reason is because it's very unlikely that we're ever going to see another adaptation of Superman... Along the lines of Smallville and what and everything that Smallville did, and so uh, that's one of that's a I, honestly that's another reason that I just cherish the show, knowing that something like this for Superman is very unlikely to ever happen again, and so it now has its own little unique slot in, I guess, Superman's history. That really, there's nothing out there that's really that you can really compare it to. Now, as much as I enjoy *Man of Steel* and I think it's a great movie, the comparison to *Superman: The Movie* is a little—I would say—I would go so far as to say, as comparing *Man of Steel* to *Superman: The Movie* is inevitable. We are all gonna do it. There's not likely, though, to ever be anything that comes down the pipeline that y- that we're gonna compare *Smallville* to because it's—it is just such its own unique entity, and so. Yeah, that's actually a good point. I may not have ever thought about that, but yes, yeah, Smallville really is unique in that regard. So anyway, to get back into Mark's email, though, he writes, with, uh, with, with that, the show grew as well from the typical freak of the week to a series about characters that were actually quite complex. I think current comics missed a great opportunity to integrate Lionel Luther into continuity. Though they tried to introduce Chloe, they waited too long, and I think the character suffered from a bad creative team, but that's just my opinion. I'm going to put this email on pause and say, you know, I've always wondered how viable Chloe Sullivan is as a comic book character. And the reason for that is because in the first season of Smallville, she was kind of the surrogate for the audience. She was sort of our... She wasn't our point-of-view character, but she was, I guess, the realist in the group that was sort of asking the same questions that the audience is asking. And so that was, I guess, her literary purpose there. More broadly, though, uh, she's sort of a Lois Lane prototype, maybe is the best way to put it. And because of her similarity to Lois, and then later her kinship to Lois... it did did always kind of make me wonder that this is not going to be an easy character to bring into the comics because she already has so much in common with Lois to begin with. Giving Chloe a unique identity in the comics would be a pretty tough thing to manage because there's a sense in which she's kind of a Lois Lane clone to begin with. And so that was a problem that I think the show had somewhat. When Chloe and Lois were both in there at the same time, that Lois's character development—there were, uh, I, there—obviously we're nowhere near that in terms of dis- uh, discussing that in my Smallville retrospectives yet. But I do believe there was a point when Lois Lane's character development in Smallville jeopardized Chloe as a character, and I don't think it's an accident that right about the time Lois started working at the Daily Planet is right about the time Chloe was shown the door. It had to be that way. Because uh, ultimately, you're left with these two such similar characters, and if Superman is capable of falling in love with Lois Lane, Chloe Sullivan has a lot of those same qualities. Now, as I've gone through my Smallville retrospective, I've outlined what I think are very plausible reasons why Clark wouldn't choose Chloe but would choose Lois, even though they are so similar as people. But, ultimately, that's the kind of stuff that you, I don't know, you, you kind of need to hold the show under a microscope in order to really get to the fine text of everything. And I don't blame the average uh, TV show viewer for not wanting to put that amount of study into uh, character dynamics. And so, something had to be done with Chloe, and I think, ultimately, they found ways to... Use Chloe in ways that work to Chloe's strengths and benefits as a character. And still preserving who she was before, but moving her in a different direction to give Lois room, basically to become Lois Lane. So overall, I think it works, but that's Smallville. Bringing her into the comics, that's going to be a pretty tough chore. And I've never really been surprised that it's never been completely done, or at least not... As a lasting thing, I suppose. So, anyway. um, There you have it, though. That's only my opinion. To get back into Mark's email, though, uh, he writes, While you were reading the email about Chris Evans and whether he could be replaced as Captain America, it got me thinking about all the times they've tried to replace comic characters. It's happened countless times. While Bruce Wayne is truly THE Batman, it wasn't hard for Dick Grayson to put on the cape and cowl. Green Lantern has an entire core... And Hal's been replaced countless times. Donna Troy was Wonder Woman. Wally West re- replaced Barry Allen, and so on. But Superman? Never. Sure, during re- the reign of the Superman, they tried to trick us into thinking the Eradicator, Cyborg, or even John Irons could be Superman, but we knew it wasn't so. Monel? Great character, but he can never replace Superman. This is my whole p- my whole point. Number one, or sorry, no one, no one can replace Superman. He's the first, the best, and really is the most freaking cool superhero ever. No matter what era, no matter what creative team, Superman is and will always be the best. I'm getting off my soapbox now. And I'm going to put Mark's uh, email on pause again and say, dude, get right back up on that soapbox, because I'm saying, preach it, brother. You'd have to go a long way to find somebody who's a bigger Superman fan than me. Superman is my favorite fictional character of all time. And so the idea that, you know, there are, there are things that you can do with other characters that you can't do with Superman, to me, that's, that's proof of his importance. That's how iconic the character is. And I've always thought that, you know, Reign of the Supermen, as much as they did try kind of to trick us into thinking that one of the Supermen or the other might be the real thing, Ultimately, I think it was never, there was never any serious consideration about really replacing Superman with any of those guys because, you, as you say, it's just not possible to do. So, uh, you know, dude, if you're expecting some kind of disagreement from me on that, you know, it ain't going to happen. So I completely agree with you there. So, Mark Wright, uh, to get back into uh, Mark's email, he writes, Keep punching, Magnus. Your friend, Mark. Uh, thanks a lot, Mark. Really appreciate this email. Obviously, I had a great time reading it, and honestly, this is you. You know what? You raise a lot of points here that I think are are, are sort of maybe the it, it's food for for thought. In as much as you know, these are things that I don't know that I ever really would have thought to mention all on my own, uh, because you know, how is there really a vehicle for something like that? But I don't know. My point is, I just I, I really enjoyed your email here, and so thank you very much for uh, for writing in. You know, I had a great time reading this, and uh, obviously w- uh, had a great time responding to it. And so I'm I'm gonna take a look at the uh, timer here. Looks like I'm at about the I'm nearing the 30-minute uh, mark of uh, of the email and and uh, feedback here. So. Yeah, I think I've got time for just one more. Let's see. Is this the? Is this the one? Let's take a look. I'm actually trying to. Forgive me. I, I know this has just got to be just riveting podcasting. So, um, just trying to find the uh, next email here in sequence that I'm actually supposed to read. Ah, yes. This is a. Uh, this is an email that comes in from. Um, uh, my old friend, uh, Socrates. Uh, the title of the uh, of the email is Wizard Articles. And Socrates writes, Glorious Magnus. Great show, as always. I liked your remarks on Wizard. As a kid, I subscribed uh, and enjoyed a lot of the content. The drawing tutorials were great. I'm going to put this email on pause and say, Dude, I loved the um, column that uh, Greg Capullo used to do about, it wasn't just, you know, how to draw, you know, cool-looking characters and neat-looking poses. There There were times when he would show you how to draw female characters. And his point, I will remember this for the rest of my life, but Greg Capullo's point in that article was that there's a tendency among men to draw female characters like men in drag. And they're not really drawing the female form. They're... Sort of trying to morph and twist the male form, and put that into a, a woman's clothes, and that just doesn't work. Another thing that he did was he he did a column about how to tell stories in comics. You know how to make the most efficient use out of every page and every panel. You know the the layout of uh, of of panels and everything. And then he would um, he had other articles about you know the proper use of perspective and how to do it on and on and on. And this isn't quite the same as going to some kind of art school that will teach you these things. But it does give you sort of an idea of number one, what a master, an unsung master, Greg Capullo is. And number two, how many people in the business, especially back then, really just kind of bumbled around and fucked everything up when they they you know, they had I guess really no incentive to to learn and better themselves because we were in the middle of the 1990s comic book boom and who cared as you know what the comics looked like as long as they sold millions of copies and all that stuff and you know wizard is as arguably i think guilty of perpetuating that as anybody else but you know when you get down to um you know like real content like that uh, that used to be in old wizard magazines dude i agree with you i think those were uh, Those were just, even for somebody who's not an artist like me, I still think those were extremely educational and very instructive. So, dude, my point is I agree with you, man. So, anyway, get back into uh, Socrates' email, though. He writes, The creator articles were also interesting, and I knew of no other magazine or website that provided the same content back then. I also think the letters column was equally interesting. Their annual up-and-coming talents feature provided a great showcase of work. I'm going to put this email back on pause and say, you know what? They would do. I remember that Wizard magazine. Shit. Now I want to do a wiz, like an all Wizard special here. But I do remember that Wizard magazine. Like there were times when they would basically throw out an idea of. Not an idea, I guess. They, they would basically, as a contest, right, they would give you sort of a sample comic book page, a script, basically. And they would tell artists reading, draw us your interpretation of this page and then send it in to us. And what I remember is that it was, an, it, at least the one I remember most clearly, it was um, the uh, Jean-Paul Vallee, uh version of Batman throwing a battering and then uh, sw- uh, swooping off into the night, you know? And it was amazing how... We're talking about like three or four panels here. Amazing the amount of different ways that can be interpreted, you know? The How dark a night was it? Where is the light? Uh, how are the panels arranged? What are the angles that were used? On and on and on. And it was... I, I guess what I'm saying is it it, it it came along at a time when I guess I hadn't really paid a whole lot of attention to or given a whole lot of a whole lot of thought to the amount of work and I guess artistic inspiration that goes into any comic book. But yeah, uh, that was definitely something that I that I remember. So that was really cool. Wow, dude, this is really a trip down memory lane, man. Anyway, get back into Socrates's email though. Uh, he writes. They also provided a graded comic review for two to four titles a month, which is a precursor to some modern podcasts. I also remember their movie call articles that uh, cast current actors in superhero movie roles, and I think Brad Pitt was cast as Captain America. LOL. I'm going to put this on pause and say, yeah, you know, the, um, I, I kind of came up with a sort of anti-Marvel prejudice. That was just you know the world that I came from. I just really wasn't hip on marvel or anything like that so i remember though that they did a uh, casting call for an avengers movie and i and i will remember this for the rest of my life especially now but they said of course we know that it's impossible to ever make an avengers movie but um i remember thinking that you know what that sounds like a really cool freaking idea to make a movie and the one that i remember oddly enough, was Brad Pitt as Captain America. Couldn't tell you anything about the rest of the cast, but I remember Brad Pitt playing Captain America. And I remember thinking even, like at the time, that's pretty good casting. Obviously, I've got a different opinion now. But to get into Socrates's email, uh, he writes, However, Wizard basically ruined Watchmen and other stories with articles like Best Moments in Comics. I'm putting the email back on pause to say, Eh... You know, I don't, I, I don't know about that because, well, it, actually, first off, I'm not sure what you mean by ruined. If you mean, I don't know, overhyped and overtalked and just kind of played out certain comics, then, well, I don't know because I hadn't read Watchmen since that's the example you use. I hadn't read Watchmen uh, at the time that, um, that moment where uh, Ozymandias says. Why would I tell you about My Master Stroke if there was any chance of you affecting its outcome? I put this in motion half an hour ago. And I'd never read that before, and I, dude, that was a sucker punch for me, because like a lot of us, I think I was... I was, I guess, as ingrained in the uh, in certain comic tropes as anybody else, where the hero arrives just in the nick of time to stop the villain from executing whatever his evil plan is and the idea where the bad guy wins that's some heavy shit and just seeing that one panel completely out of context because you don't really need context for that it was a real punch in the balls it's like wow the heroes didn't get there in time holy shit and for whatever reason that didn't inspire me to go read Watchmen at least not right away but I remember thinking that was just such a cool fucking idea for a comic. Now, if you mean it, that wizard spoiled moments like that, well, eye of the beholder. I don't know. So, anyway, I'm not sure like, exactly how you meant that, but, uh, you know, whichever. Anyway, to get back into uh, Socrates' email. He writes, Wizard turning into a, shield was, uh, sorry, a shill was a horrible death for a mag I looked forward to reading each month. And I'm going to put the email back on pause and say, you know what, on the one hand, I understand what you're saying there, but on the other hand, it's kind of hard for me to think of a time when Wizard Magazine wasn't a shill, you know, because as I remember it, and maybe I'm wrong, but as I remember it, they pretty much started off as cheerleaders for Valiant and especially Image. And yeah, you know, you've got Marvel and DC and, you know, whatever that they're doing, whatever they're doing, but, man, we're here to talk about Valiant and we're here to talk about Image. And then there came a point when Wizards sort of became... It became the same thing that MTV became, you know? There was a point, like, back in the 80s, and to a degree the 90s, where MTV was pretty much make or break. If you weren't on MTV you weren't going to make it big. MTV pretty much determined your fate to some degree, right? And if you got played on MTV, your odds of, you know, hitting it big as a, you know, uh, as a big time hit rock band, it's pretty good. It's not an absolute, but it's pretty good, you know. MTV could make or break bands. There came a point though when that changed. There came a point when MTV stopped defining what's cool, and MTV started reflecting what's cool, MTV stopped being a taste maker, and started being a sort of American bandstand putting on the hits type of thing. And if you think about it, that really is a major fucking transformation. You know, like I said, in the 80s and 90s, MTV determined what's cool. There came a point, though, when they stopped determining what's cool, and they started playing what other people decided was cool. And I think a good example of that is uh, Creed, the rock band Creed. Now, I'm not trying to argue the artistic merits of Creed, or for that matter, I'm not really bashing on them either, because I think they've actually got a couple of good songs. My point, though, is that Creed, they got famous... By a shitload of touring and a shitload of radio. That's it. What I'm saying is that Creed completely sidestepped MTV on their way to number one. And think about that for a minute. When was the last time, at least in my lifetime, a band went to number one in spite of MTV rather than because of it? But that's what happened with Creed. And I think that exact same thing happened with Wizard. You know, there there was a point when you know, damn it, they were shills for Valiant and Image, and that was an image. And I guess that was a reputation that they were happy to cultivate. There came a point, though, when that sort of changed, and they, you know, rather than being shills for, you know, I, I guess the the two big independent books, they were sort of riding the coattails of whatever was popular at the time. You know, whether it was you know shitloads of Wolverine uh, covers. Or um, in-depth interviews with—I'm trying to think here—Joe uh, Matarera, who just started up drawing the Uncanny X-Men at the time, or, or just whatever was going on. And the—and uh, and it just kind of felt like you know they had a very specific, and kind of aggravating, but still a specific identity in the marketplace. And then, possibly because of the—I guess the bust—the post-1993 bust. In comics, Image, or rather Wizard, it it sort of became the same thing that MTV did, where they're just sort of the People Weekly now of of the comic industry, where they don't they don't uh, set anybody's agenda anymore. They don't determine what's cool and what's shit. They are simply riding the same the same bandwagons as anybody else, and I don't know. Um, It just kind of feels like, you know, on the one hand, there was always a good magazine, a good periodical lurking around between those covers. And, yeah, sometimes, you know, they went a little overboard with price guides and top ten lists and all that kind of bullshit. But I always kind of felt like the feature stories and cover stories that they would do from time to time... Kind of balanced it all out. I mean, yeah, you know, you'd have to uh, so, uh, sift through these sort of puff pieces about, what a, uh, about how Mark Silvestri has a 10 foot long dick and all this stuff. But at the same time, you would get these, uh, f- you know, features about uh, John Semper, the uh, a- executive producer of Sp- the uh, 1990s Spider Man animated show. Or you'd get these in depth interviews with John Byrne or, or Dave Cockrum or Paul Smith and, well, not so much John Byrne, because I already w- was very well aware of him and his career, but Dave Cockrum and Paul Smith and people like that that the comics industry had sort of forgotten about, giving them sort of a look back, you know, some, just some time in the sun, or Bob Layton, there's another one, it just kind of felt like things like that are ultimately what made Wizard, a sort of worthwhile thing, you know, because yeah, they could be part of that whole speculator mentality bullshit as much as anyone else, but they would still bring home the bacon when it really mattered. And so, I don't know. I mean, I kind of regard Wizard Magazine, it's kind of got a little bit of a mixed legacy, especially now, but I don't know. Anyway, uh, maybe I should do a Wizard retrospective show at some point. I don't know. But anyway. Uh Socrates writes off his uh signs off with his email by saying, Best regards, Socrates and Miami. And dude, thank you for writing in because I really dug this uh this email here. Obviously I had a great time reading it. There's just so much here to say. And so uh, thank you very much. I do appreciate you taking the time to uh write in. And so uh let's take a look here. Let's see how far along I am. Yeah, I'm i I'm pushing forty-five minutes here of feedback, so I better go ahead and call it a day. So all right, well, thanks to everybody for writing in, Fanboyamus Prime, Mark, uh, Socrates, everybody. Thank you for uh, taking the time to, uh, you know, write in and share your thoughts. For those of you who want to write in and also share your thoughts, I can be reached at TrenusMagnus at com. That's T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S at gmail.com. Just feel free to send me an email. Just let me know what, what you think about whatever you're thinking. So I think that should be pretty much that. So... Um, as to next week, um, let's see. I've got a shitload of Batman comics on tap that I want to talk about. So come back for that. And uh, this is basically going to be part of the uh, buildup, continuing the buildup to my epic, epic, epic episode 100. So come back for that and I uh, hope you'll enjoy it. So uh, as for me this week, uh, bye, everybody. I will see you next week. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus punches reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S M-A-G-N-U-S-S You can email me and my parole officer at Trentus Magnus at gmail.com which is spelled T-R. E-N-T-U-S M-A-G-N-U-S Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday and that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2 twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, And can help you spread the word about your show i'm always looking for more promos to play keep it fairly short and yours could be next my promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested just look for the promo section the contents of this podcast are fictitious hypothetical and probably completely unnecessary any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental, and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with De Mansocor of Milan, Italy.